The lesson today is Disciples Live for the Kingdom. We're going to find this in Matthew chapter 13. Now, having come to seek and to save the lost, Jesus now tells his followers what a life devoted to him actually looks like. Those who've been pursued and rescued by God will now, in turn, pursue his kingdom as well as his righteousness. Jesus illustrates this discipleship by telling his listeners several parables about the kingdom of heaven. By telling these stories, Jesus is actually provoking his listeners to think much more deeply about the growth, the value, and even the purity of his kingdom. As Jesus told stories about the kingdom, he intended his listeners to think deeply about why he had come and what his saving reign actually produces. Jesus was a masterful storyteller who used parables to both provoke the religious leaders, but also to woo his disciples into a much deeper understanding of who he is and what he came to do. His stories often surprised his, surprised his listeners, causing them to reflect much more deeply upon the nature of the kingdom. In the first set of parables we'll look at, Jesus surprises even us with the way his kingdom grows. Now, the first point of this lesson is the growth of the kingdom. We're going to find this in Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 to 33. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour, until all of it was leavened. Now, Jesus described the kingdom of God using this agricultural imagery that would have been very familiar to his disciples. The kingdom is described as a mustard seed that a person takes and plants in a field. This parable describes the kingdom in terms of its growth as well as its expansion. The mustard seed was one of the smallest, though not the tiniest, of seeds. While there are other seeds that are actually much smaller, Jesus used exaggeration for effect here. The minute size of the mustard seed does not compare to the great tree that actually will come out of the ground. Mustard trees, in our reckoning, are more like a bush, large bush. They grow approximately 9 to 10 feet tall in a season. And this incredible growth is remarkable to any onlooker from being so small as a seed to its immense growth within one season. Jesus was telling his listeners that the kingdom might not look like it has a dramatic breakthrough in this world, but its growth would actually be exponential. As the plant grew, it became large enough for the birds of the air to nest in its branches. By calling this bush a tree, Jesus probably alluded to the Old Testament references where the birds of the air came to Israel. 
In Ezekiel 7, chapter 17, for example, the picture of a bird taking part of a cedar shoot illustrates the Babylonian exile. But by the end of the passage, birds of every kind come to the cedar that has been planted on the mountain of Israel. While the mustard bush would hardly look like a great cedar tree, Jesus was making the point about the nature of the kingdom. People would be tempted to despise the meager bush, yet in spite of the tree's appearance, the birds would come, referring to the nations who would find refuge within God's kingdom. One day the kingdom growth will be fully realized when Jesus returns and gathers people from every nation, tribe, and language to him. Similar to the mustard seed, Jesus told a parable of a woman who mixed a little leaven into 50 pounds of wheat flour until the entire batch had been permeated by the yeast. The amount of flour seems quite excessive. 50 pounds of flour would certainly prepare a great amount of bread for many, many people. By taking a little bit of an old batch of dough that had already been worked through the, with yeast, the woman mixed the old with the new, and the little bit of leavened dough, really, it worked its way throughout the entire batch of flour without even realizing it. It just took a few mixes and kneading of the flour to get it to work through. And it wasn't necessarily obvious to an onlooker. Like a little seed that grows into a great bush, Jesus pointed out that a little bit of leaven could work its way through the large batch and prepare bread, not only for the people of the house, but actually for an entire village or even community. Both parables allude to how God's kingdom, though starting out small, will be thoroughly transformative. The growth was quiet and subtle, but actually very real. Jesus uses leaven as an example of how the kingdom of God grows and expands. The Old Testament did not always portray yeast as a bad thing. At the Feast of Pentecost, or Feast of Weeks, Israel was instructed to eat leavened bread. Together, these two parables paint a picture of God's plan for his kingdom. While God's kingdom might start small, the kingdom would grow exponentially. This parable encourages Christians who wonder, what can I do for the kingdom is just one person? When we obey God and step out in faith to share the gospel with others, God can really accomplish quite a bit. If God's work looks tiny at first like a seed, we should not determine that this plant will be insignificant. If a little bit of leaven is worked through an entire batch of dough, then God's ways are not our ways and his kingdom will surprise us by its incredible growth. Now, the second point of this lesson is the value of the kingdom. And it's found in Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure, buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, in this verse, Jesus compared the kingdom to a treasure that's hidden in a field. A man stumbling across this treasure would be a rare occurrence. Before the Babylonian exile, hiding a treasure underground would be a reasonable practice. When the Israelites returned to Judah, 
After the exile, they brought back the banking profession they learned in Babylon. It's possible that the treasure had been buried several decades before by someone who was now deceased, leaving the personal fortune to be discovered by a new landowner. Had the man removed the treasure when he found it, this would have been theft. To rebury it was to place it back in the field and leave the land as it was. The only way the man could secure this field with the treasure was to sell everything he had. Therefore, he joyfully accepted the loss of everything in order to gain this land, knowing that he discovered great wealth. The value of the kingdom Jesus teaches is of inestimable value. The radical action taken by the man to purchase the field is comparable to the radical action of Jesus' disciples to actually up and leave everything and follow Jesus. It seems unreasonable, but it's extremely rational to someone who understands what they are gaining in Christ by giving up the world. Now that is true faith. Some have questioned the morality of the man's behavior, believing that he found the treasure in someone else's field, and instead of disclosing the value of the property, he paid less for the field than if the actual treasure had been revealed. While Jesus was not teaching about the morality of real estate, he may have implied that the kingdom was being taken from an owner who did not know nor actually appreciate the value of what he had. Just like that, that like the parable of the vineyard, the kingdom is taken from the tenants and given to others. In a similar way, the kingdom belongs to those who know its value because of their faith and live in light of its surpassing worth. In the second parable in this section, Jesus once again showed great value of the kingdom. This time a merchant of fine jewels sought fine pearls for his collection. He was intentional in this, his pursuit, knowing exactly what he was looking for. Now, in the Middle East at this time, pearls were some of the most precious of jewels. So when this merchant came across this single pearl, he quickly recognized that this pearl was of a greater value than anything else that he might own. As a result, he joyfully sold everything so that he might secure this one precious pearl. Jesus was not saying that the kingdom can be purchased. Instead, he pointed to its surpassing worth. The call of discipleship in the kingdom of heaven is worth giving up the world so that we might know the joy of the invaluable kingdom. There are similarities in these two parables. Both men acted in a way that seemed out of the ordinary. Their behavior would look like would look actually extremely questionable to any onlooker. But this is the nature of the kingdom. The normal practices of self-interest in this world are put aside in order to gain eternal life. With Jesus. Now, to put it in economic terms, the kingdom changes our perspective, our attitude, and even the use of wealth. A disciple of Jesus is willing to sell everything he or she has for the sake of the kingdom. There are differences between these two parables. One treasure was found on land, the other by sea. One was discovered by surprise, the other was actually sought after. But both parables make the same point. Whether discovered or sought, the kingdom of heaven is worth more than anything in this world. Therefore, the disciples of Jesus who follows him will give up everything 
for the sake of the surpassing worth of Christ and his kingdom, doing it willingly and joyfully. Now, the third point in this lesson is the purity of the kingdom. And we're going to find this in Matthew chapter 13, verse 47 to 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collected every kind of fish, and when it was full, they dragged it ashore, sat down, and gathered the good fish into containers, but threw out the worthless ones. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will go out, separate the evil people from the righteous, and throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be, weep there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this parable about the nature of the kingdom, Jesus described it as a net that was thrown into the sea and captured every kind of fish. Recall that Jesus had called his disciples to fish for people. Now Jesus made it very clear that this mission included going out to all people from every nation and not merely just the Jewish people. When casting a dragnet, the top of the netting had, had floats, and the bottom had weights. It would be anchored to shore or attached to two boats, possibly. The boats would then move into position to entrap every fish that was near. After pulling the net filled with fish onto the shore, fishermen would sit down to make a judgment on which fish should be kept. The fish would be sorted, throwing out the bad ones and keeping the good ones. The good fish were probably clean according to the dietary laws, of Leviticus chapter 11, verses 9 through 12. Though Jesus may be referring to those fish that are edible and those that are not, some fish may have been too small to keep, some may have been diseased, and others just simply may not have been suitable at all. In the end, those fish that were discarded actually had no value, and so they were not kept. The implication of Jesus' teaching is that the kept fish were the ones that responded favorably to the message of the kingdom of heaven. They responded with faith to the news that Jesus came to save sinners, and Jesus saved them from their sins. Those fish that were discarded did not accept the message of the kingdom, remaining unconvinced and failing to respond in repentance and faith. This becomes the basis for the separation of the good and the bad fish within the parable. The fish could not be separated until the entire catch was actually brought in when the fishermen could make a final judgment on which ones could be kept and which ones should actually be discarded. Jesus warned that a final judgment is coming, similar to how bad fish were discarded. Jesus described what would happen to the wicked at the end of the age. Jesus had already given a similar warning in his parable about the wheat and the weeds. While Jesus called his disciples to be fishers of people, here the angels were the fishers who brought in all the fish, which were then sorted in a final judgment. The righteous, those who have trusted Christ and live by the values of the kingdom, are gathered, and the wicked, those who have rejected Christ, are cast out into the blazing furnace. Jesus prophesied that there would be a time when his kingdom would finally be realized. While we may not be able to sort between the good and evil now, Jesus made it very clear that our responsibility is to the fish to fish for people and share the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. 
Christ is actually the ultimate judge. His kingdom will be a pure kingdom in the end, and he will ensure that evil does not prevail. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, John described the New Jerusalem as being without cowards, the faithless, those who are detestable murderers, the sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. These ones, John said, will be cast into the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. While we may wonder why in our world the righteous suffer while the wicked seem to flourish, the question that Psalm 70, this is the question that Psalm chapter 73 wrestles with. This parable actually reminds us that it is, it is only for a season. At the end of the age, when the kingdom comes in all of its fullness, God will deal with every person according to their deeds. The righteous will be blessed with the realization of eternal life, with God and joy in his presence forevermore. The wicked, on the other hand, will receive the punishment of eternal judgment, where the suffering will never end and the misery of rejecting God will be realized forever and ever. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just pray for the lost and hurting this morning, Lord, that you would just send servants to share the light of Jesus with them and the promise of salvation that he brought for us, that he could save our souls, that we might live eternally with you, God. And Lord, I pray for those that are sick and hurting, that you would just be with them and surround them with your arms of grace and mercy and just raise them up. And Lord, I pray that you would be with everyone that listens to this lesson, that you would just send the Holy Spirit to guide their footsteps and to show them who they should share the light and love of Jesus with this week. For it's in Jesus' precious name that I pray. Amen.